Uh, find 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at Christian success. Very different from success in the world. Christian success. And we're going to look in the first seven verses at some biblical images that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy. Now the first two images are more implied than stated. Okay? More implied than stated. And we'll go over those first two. And then the last three are very clearly stated. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. But we're going to look at these five images of what it means to be a disciple and to be the kind of disciple the Lord has called us to be for His church. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And again, let's, uh, let's begin there in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2. Uh, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray together. Lord, you said that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and he would bring to our minds those things that we need to know. God, it's our prayer that you would open our minds and our understanding now to your word. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. The way your Holy Spirit takes your word and works in our hearts to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Lord, help us as disciples and as leaders in the church and those training for leadership in the church to understand what you say here about those who serve. We pray that this would be used to your glory. And Lord, as the psalmist prayed, I pray that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1923, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Again, the year was 1923. Now, listen to the men who were present. The president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, the soon-to-be president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear in Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, and the head of the world's greatest monopoly. Folks, collectively, these tycoons controlled more wealth than there was at the time in the entire U.S. Treasury. And for years, newspapers and magazines were printing their stories and urging the youth of America to follow in their footsteps. 
to be leaders. Now, 25 years later, let's think about what happened to each one of of these men. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, not to be confused with the more modern uh, Charles Schwab of the financial world, but he lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and he died broke. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, was indicted for tax evasion of hundreds of thousands of dollars and he died before being brought to trial. The soon-to-be president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, ended up serving a term in Sing Sing Prison and being paroled after three and a half years. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was indicted in 1929 for accepting a bribe from a prominent oil man. He was fined $100,000 and sentenced to one year in prison. He was pardoned from prison after 10 months due to an illness so he could die at home. The greatest bear in Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, also known as the Wall Street Wonder, was one of the speculators uh, blamed for having precipitated the great uh, crash of the stock market in 1929. He committed suicide one week after Thanksgiving in 1940. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, committed suicide. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivan Kruger, committed suicide. All of these men had learned well how to be leaders in the world and how to make money, but it seems as though not a single one of them had truly learned how to be a success in life. Folks, we know that the world is enamored with success. Even in the church, you let a church start doing well and growing and and all of a sudden they're hosting conferences and people are rushing in to see what that church is doing and all kinds of books and articles are being written. We, We love a success story. Well, our passage today deals with that. It may not be the world's definition of success, but it's God's definition. And as we think about God's definition, uh, it kind of reminds me of what God said to the prophet Isaiah. Here was Isaiah, the prince of the prophets, wrote more about the coming of the Messiah than any other prophet perhaps. And yet you remember what God said to Isaiah? Isaiah, you're going to go and tell, but they're not going to listen. Finally, God brought judgment on the land. They didn't listen to Isaiah. The Assyrian invasion happened, and then after that, of course, in Jeremiah's time, the Babylonian exile. But here's the prince of the prophets, and he had a very difficult time. Later in the book of Isaiah, God says, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Folks, God has a different standard. He has a higher standard. He has a better standard. And we see some of that in this chapter here. As I mentioned to you at the outset, it's filled with different images. Images communicate in powerful ways. 
And what we're going to see in these images, the way God measures success, not by the world standards, but by standards that include our personal growth, our investment in other people's lives and their growth, our detachment from a love of the things of the world, our discipline and our hard work. We're going to see all of these. Now, as I mentioned, the first two images are inferred. Let's look at the first. The first would be the image of a growing child. Success in the Christian life consists of a growing relationship with Christ. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace or be made strong. Now, it doesn't come out well in English, but in the Greek text, and I encourage you to take that here. I believe Dr. Thompson uh, teaches Greek. There's, there's three things, at least three things about this phrase that I want to point out to you before we move on. First of all, it's in the passive He's saying, Timothy, be made strong. In other words, you don't make yourself strong, but allow Christ to make you strong. How does that happen? Well, it's like what Jesus spoke of in John 15. He's the vine, we're the branches. We're nothing without Him and can do nothing apart from Him. And so the secret of of growing is that we abide in Christ, we abide in His Word, and Christ and His Word abides in us. And He says, if we'll do that, we'll bear fruit, and then more fruit, and finally much fruit. It's Christ that does it. Now, along with being in the passive, it's either the locative case or the instrumental case. I'm not going to be too technical here, but you could argue either. If it's the instrumental case, he's saying be made strong by means of God's grace. By means of God's grace. God's grace is the means by which we are saved, and God's grace is also the means by which we grow. If it's the locative case, he's saying be made strong in the arena of God's grace. And so we are to be made strong in God's grace and by God's grace. It could have both applications. It's sort of like faith. Romans 1 tells us we need faith in order to be saved. It also tells us that after we're saved by faith, we need to live by faith. The just will live by faith. Well, it's the same way with God's grace. We're to grow in the grace of God that we have already experienced at our new birth. Paul could say to Timothy in chapter 1, Suffer with me, hang in there with me, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. How can one do that? By being made strong in the grace of God. Still one more thing to notice about it. It's in the imperative. That means Christian growth is not something that is optional. We are commanded to grow. God wants us to grow. It's God's will that you and I grow as Christians. God wants His church strong. You know, the type of strength that the world loves is physical strength, is it not? But God's ways are different. I want to ask you this morning, how are you growing spiritually as a child of the Lord? How are you growing? How do you grow? 
Simple principles. I mean, it's a complicated, a very involved process. I don't want to make light of it, but it's simple principles just like growing physically. You got to eat, you got to sleep, you got you to uh, keep well nourished, right? I'll never forget working under a pastor one time when I was young in ministry. A man in the state of North Carolina, uh, Dr. Horton and, and uh, others here this morning would certainly testify about this man. Great hero in the conservative movement in, in the state of North Carolina when that wasn't necessarily a popular thing. He's a man who stands about 6 foot 1, 200, 210 pounds. And we were eating lunch one day and he was talking about growing up and what a scrawny little kid he was. And I said, Ned, that's, that's kind of funny that you were so little. Why? He said, Scott, we grew up in tremendous poverty. And he said, then my dad died. And I mean, we were in poverty like few people realize. And there were times sitting around the table with just mom and all my siblings. We didn't have anything to eat. I was scrawny. I didn't grow because I didn't have anything to eat. Sad. Spiritually, we've got something to feast on. Amen? We're to grow. We're to grow in the Lord. Jesus sets the pattern. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That means he grew intellectually, he grew physically, he grew spiritually, and he grew socially. That's a pattern for us. What are you and I doing to grow intellectually? Well, you're enrolled here, right? Study hard. Honor God with your studies. What are you doing to grow physically? Stay healthy in the ministry if possible. What are you doing to grow socially? And don't tell me social media. There's a lot of negative on that, right? It kind of reminds me of a restaurant I saw on the news about two weeks ago. They had a big sign out. They said, we don't have Wi-Fi. Please talk to one another. Grow socially. Jesus grew in all of these ways, also spiritually. So again, intellectually, physically, socially, spiritually, Jesus sets the pattern. Be a growing child. I don't care how far along you go in the Christian life. How far along you grow in your training as a minister. Keep growing. Second image. A teacher. Look at verse 2. Paul continues here, uh, he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there's the image here of a steward or a teacher. You see, folks, when we are growing in Christ, the last thing we're supposed to do is keep it all for ourselves. We are to invest our lives in others. What God teaches us, we're to invest in others. We're to help them grow. Paul's instructing Timothy. He wants Timothy to leave Ephesus soon where he's left uh, Timothy to pastor. He wants Timothy to come and, and visit him in Rome and bring certain things to him. And he's counting on the fact that while Timothy's been a pastor there, as Paul has instructed him, he's been instructing others. So he'll leave the church in good shape. 
Listen to what Paul says here about his investment in Timothy and telling Timothy to likewise be a teacher. He says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy was taught by Paul publicly. There were no secretive doctrines passed along. Everything Paul did was out in the open. He wasn't like some of the heretics, some of the cults who were secretive. Timothy's to take what he's been taught uh, to him in church publicly. He's to pass that on. He's not to peddle new ideas or novelties. A preacher of the gospel, it's not to be his goal that every week he thinks he's got to have some new novel teaching to give to the church. No, what's the Bible say? We, t- we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. New applications, yes, new applications, but not new meanings. The text says what it says means what it means. Now again, it might apply to you in a, a different way. That's where some creativity can come in. But he's saying, Timothy, just pass along to others these truths that that I've taught you publicly and that many other witnesses have heard. And and then Timothy is told to teach faithful men or reliable men. They don't have to be eloquent. They don't have to be PhDs. God is looking for reliable men and women. It's not so much our ability, but our availability. Availability. God has an amazing way of taking weak vessels and using weak vessels for His glory. Again, what God is looking for is reliable men. In the church, again, what Paul has invested in Timothy, he saw something in Timothy, he invested in him. Timothy's to invest in others, reliable, who can be counted on to keep preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel. It's a beautiful trio set up here. Chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I've entrusted my life to the Lord. Same thought in verse 14 of chapter 1, God has entrusted the gospel to us. In chapter 2, verse 2, we are to entrust God's truth to others. The exciting thing to see as we do that, the way God transforms lives. That's the joy of being a minister in the church, isn't it? We just get up. It's kind of like what Martin Luther said in the Reformation. That people were commenting about all he is able to accomplish. He said, I didn't do anything. The Word did it all. I just got up and preached the Word. The Word did it all. Invest in others. Invest this word in others. Because it'll change them the way it's changed you and me. A third image here that he gives. A soldier. Success in the Christian life consists in a supreme allegiance to Jesus that's even willing to suffer for the gospel. Look at verse 3. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier. Well, that's a powerful image for the Christian life, isn't it? 
You want to sleep late? Sorry. You get up when the bugle sounds. My son-in-law's in the Air Force. Has to get up, I think he said, 4.30 every morning. They've got to be reporting on base and ready to go, 5.15. He has no control over that. He's a soldier. You want steak for supper? Sorry, you, you, you get whatever they give you in the chow line. You want to go visit mama and daddy? Sorry, you go when you get a pass. Your life's not your own. Your commanding officer controls every aspect of your life. And as a soldier, there's difficult things to endure. There's training to endure. It can be hard at times. If there's a war that breaks out, you go to war. You leave your family. And guess what? You might not even come back. That's what a soldier does. Jesus said, that's what you're to be for me. And Paul is saying, that's, Timothy, that's an image for you, a soldier of Christ. Remember the young man that came running up to Jesus on one occasion, said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And let, me, let me go and bury my, my parents first. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Sounds cruel maybe until you realize what was actually going on there. That young man was saying, Lord, let me go back home and, and my, my parents might live another 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or whatever. Let, let me get done with all those family commitments with them and, and when they're finally dead and gone and I don't have any more ties in life like that, then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't work that way. A soldier has to suffer hardship. We're in battle. We're in a war. Too many Christians today have a cruise ship mentality instead of a battleship mentality. Ephesians 6 says we're engaged in spiritual warfare, battling against principalities and powers in high places. And so Paul is saying to Timothy here, in this warfare, what you've got to do, you've got to keep your life free of entanglements. You've got to have a single-minded purpose. A soldier doesn't have all the liberties that a civilian has. A soldier of Christ is the same way. I believe one of Satan's chief weapons in the modern church is trying to divert us and get us focusing on things that don't really matter. And he'll use appealing things to get you entangled. He doesn't come to you and offer something to you that, that you think is just anathema. He offers things to you that you might naturally gravitate towards. Might be things that seem okay in and of themselves, but for you, it will end up being an entanglement. Is there anything like that in your life that you need to deal with? So you'll be a better soldier of the cross. The fourth image, the image of an athlete. Look at verse 5, what he says here in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So what stands out about the athlete? His, his training, his, his discipline, his self-control. The athletes in the ancient world had to offer proof that they had rigorously trained 10 months before that event 
Uh, for the last two months of the 10, they had to train at what would be comparable, I suppose, to something like one of our local YMCA's. And they trained under close scrutiny and supervision. Only then could they be allowed to enter the race or whatever the competition was. And then once they finished the competition, the judges would carefully scrutinize. They didn't reward them right away. They took time. They would carefully analyze everything. Did this athlete compete according to the rules? And only if he or she did, they called him up on the platform and they gave him the crown. Paul says here that Stephanos, it was, it was a crown of, of greenery types. It's stuff that would wilt. It'd be wilted in a week's time. Now, it was a great honor to win athletic competitions. Athletes got big honors besides just the crown. But, but the New Testament tells us these athletes do all of this. They go through all this training, all this discipline, all this hard competition to get that crown that's going to fade and he's saying, brothers and sisters, you and I do it for a crown that will never fade. It's sad that the athletes in the world a lot of times show more discipline and more self-control and more commitment in their respective sports than you and I do in our Christian lives. That's a shame, isn't it? It's a real shame. Are you disciplined? Is there something in your life that uh, if you're not careful, it would even disqualify you? We've, we've seen over the past several decades a number of Christian leaders go through something like that. Something that disqualified them. They didn't lose their salvation. I believe in the security of the believer. But they lost their testimony. They were, they were disqualified from serving in the same capacity that they had been serving in. Is there anything like that in your life that you need to give close attention to before it's too late? Before you lose your testimony? Are you self-controlled? Are you disciplined? And then what's the last image that he gives here of Christian success? A farmer... Look what he says in verse 6. He says, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. My first church out of seminary was in a farming community, and I used to love to get out and work with some of the farmers. They were, they were dairy farmers for the most part. Um, I'd milk cows with them, get up hay. Getting up hay wasn't so fun. I mean, it'd be, it'd be a hottest, muggiest day when we get up hay. And boy, we'd be stacking that hay up on a trailer way up there, and we'd be up on top of it. I, I said, Ricky, what do we do? Because we were in the mountains. What do we do if this thing tips over? He said, if it tips over, keep climbing upward. Keep Stay on top of it. Don't, don't try to jump up. It'll crush you. But that, that was hard work. We'd get back to the barn and have to put it all up in the loft. That was hard work. Those farmers worked hard. That's the characteristic of a farmer. They prepare the fields, they cultivate, they plant, they fertilize. And then comes the harvest after months and months of work and waiting. A farmer's got to be patient. That's a good description of the Christian life, isn't it? We sow the seed. 
We pray. We wait. Because the harvest is in God's hands. Psalm 126.6 says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So again, there you have it. All these images of Christian success. And think of how this contrasts with what the world says. God wants you to be a growing child. Are you growing? What step, what tangible steps can you identify that you are growing? Growing in your knowledge of the Word, growing in the things of God, making progress. In that progress you're making, a teacher, you're a teacher too. You're a student, but you're a teacher too. You've got a circle of influence around you. And you're to invest in them. You're to share with them what God's taught you. It's not just for you. You're to share it with them. A soldier. No entanglements. Living for the pleasure of your commanding officer. An athlete. Discipline, self-control, competing according to the rules. Making sure you're not disqualified from service in any way. And a hard-working farmer. It's tough sometimes to be a Christian servant in the church. These guys who are pastors will tell you. It's hard work. Some people have the idea that we only work one day a week and then we work too long. <laughs> it's hard work. Again, the farmers, the, the image there. Sowing the seed, praying, waiting, preparing the soil, getting the seed there, waiting. And then comes the harvest and the joy of seeing the harvest. Now notice how Paul ends this text. Timothy, think about these things. Verse 7. Consider these things. Dwell on these things. Think about these things. Meditate on these things. Because in every single one of these images of what you need to be, Timothy, in your Christian life, God's got a lesson for you in your life, an application for you in your life. And you carry out these five things. And you know what? You and I may never, ever, 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 ever be a success in the eyes of the world. And that doesn't matter. Because the world and all that's in it is passing away. But we can stand before God and God says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul, the a young man that he had invested in. Lord, we're still reading these words today. They're still impacting our lives today. Lord, we thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives. The call to serve you. And it's about investing in others who in turn will invest in still others after them. God, help us to be found faithful. Lord, may we not strive after the accolades of the world. That's vanity. 
May we strive to please you. All to your honor and glory. And to the building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray.